Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. In today's episode, we are honored to have two experts on trade and peace, one with vast experiences on mediation and conflict resolution, and the other on multilateral trade, Dr. Akim Wenman and Dr. Patrick Lowe. Akim served as the executive coordinator of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform, a knowledge hub that connects peacebuilding actors, resources, and expertise in Geneva. He is currently the advisor for strategic development and partnerships to the director of the Graduate Institute and an associate fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. Akim is also the co-founder of the Geneva Peace Week and the Peace Talk Initiative and has facilitated numerous multi-stakeholder processes. Patrick is a fellow of the Asia Global Institute and also works as a Geneva-based consultant on trade and trade-related matters. Prior to that, Patrick was with the WTO Secretariat for 18 years, where he worked for two years on matters relating to trading services before becoming the chief economist of the WTO. During that time, Patrick also served briefly as the chief of staff to the WTO Director General, Mike Moore. Akim, Patrick, welcome to Trade for Peace. Thank you for joining us, Patrick and Akim. It is a pleasure to have you both on Trade for Peace today. Now, as two well-known experts, in your respective fields. I'm curious to know, what does trade for peace mean to you? Akim, I would like to start with you. Thank you so much, Axel, to have me on the program. Trade for peace to me means having an opportunity for connections. Now, um, after war and particularly during war, there have been so much destruction and division created. So uh, when a country comes back after war, Trade means you can connect to people again. You essential goods are coming to the market and also life is getting a little bit better for people. So I think this element of connectedness, of trade being able to bring people together and also to solve issues on the market, this is something that is at the core of the Trade for Peace agenda. Thank you, Akim. And to you, Patrick, what does Trade for Peace mean to you? Uh, Well, thank you, Axel, for having me on the program. And it's a pleasure to be here. As for the relationship between trade and peace, I see trade fundamentally as a means to an end. It is not an end in itself. Peace, on the other hand, is an objective. The more we can have of it, the better, and that is not necessarily the case with trade. Peace may or may not be supported by trade, but it's obviously a highly desirable outcome when trade does support peace or peacemaking. Outcomes will obviously be influenced by a lot of factors not least among them, the forces at work that determine the potential for trade to contribute to peace is whether we are talking about international conflict scenarios or domestic civil strife. 
think the difference can be quite marked in terms of what trade could and couldn't do in such circumstances. There's also the question whether we are talking about trade among countries, that is international trade, or trade within borders. So in a nutshell, that's how I see the relationship. Interactive, potentially very positive, but not by design necessarily. Thank you both. Now back to you, Akim. As someone who has worked on various academic publications on peace building, in your view, what do you see as the relationship between trade and peace? And I'm sure our audience will appreciate any current examples showcasing that correlation. Thank you. So the first is that when an economy comes out of conflict, it does not mean that the economy necessarily has stopped. So there is some um, inheritance that uh, the economy has from the war. And so the trade for peace agenda, from an academic perspective, showcases this opportunity, this pathway to take in a, a, a war economy from a closed access economy to an open access economy. So this is based on, on research, which shows that, of course, during war, a number of, uh, of key economic opportunities are controlled by very limited stakeholders. And here, towards the end of war, there's a possibility to infuse some more competition back into this market and also to uh, include the inclusiveness of who participates in the economy. This is, of course, uh, a domestic political process, but also this is a process that is inherently an issue as part of the peace process negotiations, uh, where, again, the, this is perhaps the peace part of, of, of the trade for peace. And in academia, this has been well covered uh, with respect to many conflict situations. Now, an example that, that you have asked for has, of course, been underlined by the issue of conflict diamonds. Conflict diamonds, as you may remember, have been a key fundamental issue of the civil wars uh, of the early 2000s, where you had a number of key stakeholders that were in control of these resources in order to finance their wars. Now, a trading initiative and a, and a regulation initiative called the Kimberley Process was designed in order to systematize this trade of diamonds in order for them to be more peace-enhancing. Now, all this points to the fact that from an academic perspective, there is a lot of experience out there from the peace mediation and the peace-building constituency about how to accompany these kind of transformations from conflict diamonds to more systematically trading of diamonds and also to make trade work for peace through targeted accompaniment, through architectures for peace, and other type of, uh, of, of engagement that are relevant in, in post-conflict societies. Thank you, Akim. Now over to you, Patrick. You know, assessing the causal effect of trade on peace uh, is quite challenging. As someone who's worked on various trade-related studies, is there any strong empirical evidence supporting the role of trade and trade policies in fostering peace? For sure. Where, where a relationship is discernible between trade and peace, it can be a challenge to determine the causal direction of that relationship. Is trade bolstering peace, or is it that peace is allowing trade to flourish? The question of whether or not these are mutually beneficial relationships is obviously something that has to be analyzed on a case-by-case -case basis. But if we buy the argument that economies that are more open and more interdependent are less inclined to conflict, then we might want to argue that the relationship is bidirectional. So let's say in the case of post-conflict countries that undertake reforms to join the WTO. 
The most plausible proposition might be that new markets and new trading opportunities arising from economic reform are enabled by the cessation of conflict. And in turn, trade contributes to the maintenance of this newfound peace. But it's not always going to be that simple. Say, for example, that trade generates revenue, which we would expect it to do, making people and societies better off, or at least some people and some segments of society. Then that revenue could be used to build peace through inclusiveness and greater prosperity. But in the wrong hands, the availability of trade driven income could be used to finance conflict. Much depends on the underlying economic, social, and political conditions that prevail. And we definitely need more research on these kinds of relationships. And Patrick, both to you and Akim, actually, what do you think fragile and conflict affected countries? can do to prevent some of these fragility risks where basically illicit trade, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Akeem, conflict diamonds, can be used as a means to uh, sustain wars as opposed to getting parties to the table to negotiate uh, peace. What do you think are some measures that can be uh, taken by uh, conflict-affected countries uh, to mitigate some of these fragility risks? Akeem, I would like you to respond and then Patrick. I think one one specific measure to take is to um, make sure that mediation teams that are part of the conflict, the political conflict resolution process, are being composed of individuals that also have a trade and economic background and also a particular political economy background. I think that would allow, during the political process of going towards the political settlements, that would allow already to the economy to be more pragmatically to be included. So this is one practical issue. The other one is to think about accompaniment infrastructures, because this entire trade for peace, the, the efforts, is not something that happens from today to tomorrow. So you need to have dedicated teams, functioning mechanisms that accompany those elements that are necessary to be transformed or reformed, to be accompaniment in a very sometimes extremely volatile political context. And there is really uh, an opportunity to bring closer together the expertise and the, and the knowledge base from the peace building, the trade, and also the humanitarian community in order to allow this kind of accompaniment mechanisms to nurture the flourishing of trade with the direction towards peace, uh, which Patrick already uh, noted. Because all of a sudden now there is a new direction that this entire process of reforming uh, is, is supposed to take, building on the terrible experience for most people, which is the experience of war. Thank you, Akim. And Patrick? Yeah, I think I, I would approach this looking at the policy, the trade policy environment, and what the trade policy environment should look like if it's going to minimize fragility risk. And on that score, I said a moment ago that uh, much about trade, the trade and peace nexus does depend heavily on underlying economic, social, and political conditions and realities. And the crucial factors that I think are at work here include the quality of government and governance, the rule of law, predictability of policy, how friendly the business environment is and how easy it is to, to enter and exit the business world, how low trade costs are resulting from the efficient management of trade regimes, 
But I think these are all important elements. And I think there are a couple of additional key factors. And these come as far as, and I think are becoming increasingly important and recognized around the sustainability. Sustainability, both in the social sense and in the environment sense. Trade and trade-related policies that support inclusiveness, greater equality and access to opportunity are much more likely to lessen fragility. It's sometimes argued, though, that trade can reduce levels of participation and opportunities, so there is a risk that trade could actually increase inequality. In modern economies, this kind of outcome, for example, might be associated with uh, a growing digital divide in an increasingly virtual economy. And I think these are the things that have to be watched and worried about if we're looking at this uh, a positive nexus here between trade and peace. What happens depends crucially on trade and the relative flanking and supporting policies that, and how they are managed. And similarly with environmental quality, environmental degradation and a lack of concern in this area can harm people's health and their pocketbooks truly exacerbate inequality, marginalized communities and reduce trading opportunities in a world that's becoming increasingly cognizant of the need for greener policies. So I think these kinds of considerations highlight the importance of the quality of the overall policy environment and how these things fit together in which trade occurs. Thank you, Patrick. You are listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Trade for Peace. Now, Patrick, as you are aware, there are about 23 countries in the process of accession, with nearly half of them considered to be fragile and conflict-affected. These countries often use the WTO accession process as a rebranding strategy to signal to the world that they are ready for business and see it as a way to drive inclusive growth that is conducive for sustainable peace. In your view, in sustaining peace... What reform areas should these conflict-affected states prioritize for implementation? Well, I think that a lot of this depends on the specifics of the particular country concerned, where it is, what it produces, what level of income that they that are enjoyed in the economy. But I think that the main point that I think they can really be derived out of the policy environment is the notion of pre-commitment obligations that you undertake certain forms of behavior. That means you're going to open your market to a certain degree. And it's really important that your trading partners do the same thing. So I think a big element in this whole this discussion is, is pre-commitment and greater certainty over what conditions are going to prevail in the marketplace so that businesses know what they're doing and governments can know what to expect from one another. So I, I think the, the, the actual, the concrete nature of the commitments how far you bind your tariffs, how open you become, and when are going to be things that will have to be worked out very much in a contextual framework in, in terms of what else there is in the economy, what's the infrastructure like, what's the human capital like, and so on and so forth. So I, I just think that the main point to be made here is predictability, transparency, and greater security with respect to dealing within countries and between countries with economic matters, including trade. And to you, Akim, 
What recommendations would you give to acceding governments in terms of the areas of reform they should prioritize? Thank you. So I think there, there's one batch of recommendations that would fall under the rubric of trade facilitation. This is important because many of the countries that are um, conflict countries or, or on, the, on the pathway out of conflict, they have shortages of critical goods that are, on the one hand, being brought into the country by the humanitarian community, but also in order to, uh, to expand the availability of essential goods, easier access to markets would, of course, be a huge relief to civilian populations. So this is one. That means um, access, easier access uh, going for uh, critical materials, going through ports, uh, better mobility across the country's uh, road systems, as well as easier access to airports and, and the allowing of goods to passing through there. That would all be particularly important especially in context where there is still a tremendous humanitarian crisis associated to, to the conflict. This is one. The other one is, of course, also not just thinking about trade facilitation from the outside in, but also for those productive capabilities which are in a country to be able to better get out. And this goes, in fact, into the notion of facilitating to get back into production, uh, be that fisheries, be that agriculture, being some, some other productive sectors in countries, so that there is also this trade element it plays its role in kickstarting the economy in, in one way or the other. And it also has to do with the access to ports, with the access to the, the free mobility, of unobstructed mobility within the country, as well as, of course, the ability to use airports. Now, the third area of recommendation I would give has to do with the competence of running the economy. Because in many conflict countries, the brain drain and the, the, a lot of the capabilities of running the economy has, of course, left the country. So there is a need either to get people from the diaspora back in order to have the capability to, to run the economy in a way that is, is constructive, or also to build the competences necessary in order to, to kickstart this economy again, be that with respect to uh, macroeconomic policy issues or also with very simple procedures that allows traders to operate with the least amount of red tape. Thank you, Akeem, and thank you, Patrick, for your response uh, and your insight on that question. Uh, but I would like to ask your advice on future research direction on trade and peace in a post-COVID reality. Uh, Akeem, uh, would you like to start? Yes. I build on what Patrick has already mentioned, that how different uh, the different contexts are. So I think the first overarching recommendation for future research is to be very country-specific, very localized-specific, and also within the country, be very sectorial. So as much granularity as possible is recommended so that the results of the research becomes really actionable. This is the first recommendation. The other direction or area of research I would put into the field of post-conflict transition processes. Because the trading aspect is part of a much bigger, larger political transformation. And I think that has to be analyzed very carefully so that the trading community works in sync with those who are working in the humanitarian part, in the political negotiations, or also with all these good energies which are happening both in the country as well as very frequently with, with, with diaspora communities. The third element 
is really on curricular development, I would re recommend, because there is still so much sectorial specific knowledge that is either related to peace or related to trade, but there is very little competence that really concretely fuses these, these type of knowledge and experience bases so that this capability can in fact be offered to accompany trade for, for peace to transition or to strengthen in fact the trading component the trading elements uh, within political negotiations. So these would be the three areas of future research I would propose. And uh, I think there is a huge landscape of opportunity in front of us, also recognizing that there are not just the, the, the so many countries which are part of the accession process, but also beyond this, so many countries where trade for peace knowledge could make a really critical contribution. Thank you, Akim. Now, What about you, Patrick? What advice would you give on future research direction on trade and peace? Well, there are a lot of areas, I think, where more research can be done about the linkages and interactions between trade and peace. And I think this research should be very welcome. I, I thought I'd mention a, a couple of specific areas which would not necessarily be as fundamental and, and general as the ones that Akim has been talking about, but are examples of a fairly frequently occurring situation in some countries. The first would be to get a better understanding of links between national natural resource endowments and civil strife and the role of trade in that mix. There's already a literature on the resource curse and Hakim mentioned the, um, the blood diamonds, but a lot of countries with an abundance and some would argue overabundance of resources These things can play havoc with the national economy and with domestic politics, leading to serious strife. Starting from the macro side of it, you don't want to allow the so-called Dutch disease to give you an overvalued uh, exchange rate so that you impoverish other sectors of the economy. But, but more broadly, these resources often aren't concentrated in particular geographical areas. How do you fix that in a way that ensures that this does not simply become a source of conflict? I think another related issue is ethnic tensions in, in a number of countries, in many countries, at the, at the national level, and how these feed into the dynamics of peace-seeking policies and other initiatives, what can be done about it, what concrete orientations would help to address those kinds of situations. And finally, there is a, a little bit of a literature on the differences between multilateral and regional or preferential trade agreements, and how these impact differentially on the relationship within an economy between different communities and, and, and different actors, and how easy or less easy it is for trade to act as an agent to contribute seriously to, to peacemaking and to, to, to maintaining peace. So I think those, there are plenty of other interesting topics, but those are three that I, I think would be on many a list. Thank you, Patrick, and uh, thank you, Akim, for your expert uh, insight. I am sure our listeners have greatly benefited from your knowledge and wisdom today. Let me end this with the last question. As you know, we're moving forward with the Trade for Peace agenda to, again, establish research on the linkage between trade and peace, to support fragile and conflict-affected countries as they navigate the WTO accessions negotiations. What do you see as a trade for peace agenda in the coming years? I'd like to start with you, Akim. I see the possibility to really have a, a co-creation process going forward. 
which is also cognizant of the way that uh, in international Geneva, different institutions tackling problems that are bigger than themselves. This move towards cooperation, uh, working at the nexus, is, I think, something uh, which the Trade for Peace agenda re represents. And therefore, also the network building processes, which are associated to these networks uh, across different uh, sectors, institutions, knowledge, disciplines, is so important to this. Important for the Trade for Peace agenda to go forward is this mentality of co-creation, to really uh, go outside of, strictly speaking, trade-only perspectives, and to adapt the type, uh, be able to connect to the knowledge experiences of other sectors that are working in the same countries where also trade transformations are taking place. Now, over to you, Patrick. How do you see the future of the Trade for Peace agenda? Yeah, I, I think um, Akeem has captured a lot of what I would say. I think the fact that we are participating in an event jointly organized by the Geneva Peace Building Platform and the WTO Secretariat reflects the direction I would hope to see the Trade for Peace agenda moving in, in the future. This is not something that would have happened a few years ago. And I think that's that's a, a very promising development. And I think there's much more scope, not just in this particular context, although this context would obviously become part of that, for closer collaboration, not only among intergovernmental institutions, but also involving civil society. And this at the national and international levels. Especially at the international level, we need to start shedding the compartmentalization that over the years has characterized much of the activity around international governance and cooperation. On a very personal level, I remember a couple of decades ago how difficult it was to get the WTO and the ILO and the WTO and the WHO to do anything at all together. So I think we're moving along well on this, and I hope this is a, is a momentum that will continue. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you both for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in to Episode 5 on the Academics' Perspectives on Trade for Peace. I am your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. Subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. For more episodes, visit us at www.tradeforpeace.podbean.com. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thanks for listening to Trade for Peace. Trade for Peace.